we reflected on the lives of Mary and Joseph, two people, we read, who trusted their interior experience of God, two people, we read, who followed their interior experience of God, two people who in the following helped insert light and life and truth and goodness into their world and into our world still this many generations later. Now, as we've seen, and you've experienced as well as I have, this is a difficult time for our nation. We are worrying. We are fretting. We have anxiety. We're worried about economic policies not creating meaningful work for everybody. We're worried about some groups struggling harder to make life work. We're worrying about real-life people struggling with real-life pain and about big socio-political issues that are dividing our national life. And as I've been noting in these weeks since the election, that this moment in history is doing us a great service as Christian people because it is demanding our awareness. It's demanding that we sit up and take note that real people, many of whom we know, are hurting deeply. Now, our political systems and our media systems have done a really good job of pointing out the problems. Our political systems and our media systems have done a really good job of pointing out injustices and struggles and pains and articulating the problem. For us as Christians who are called to go into the world and make right what has gone wrong and to make whole what is broken, this awareness, this rising moment that is forcing awareness upon us, this is a gift. However, those same political systems and those same media systems that have so effectively made us aware of the problem may not be as effective in helping us bring about substantive change to the problems, which I've been emphasizing for some time now is part of the gift that we have in the spiritual tradition. Because our tradition has given us tools, spiritual tools, that can make us effective in bringing about substantive change. These spiritual tools are somewhat counterintuitive, especially when it seems like the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. They're not the things that we would naturally go to first and grab and say, ah, this makes sense. Nevertheless, history has proven their effectiveness in times that are even more challenging than the one that we are going through now. Their tools, remember I said they're counterintuitive, tools like love and the inner capacity to make peace and kindness and goodness. They're tools like discernment, the capacity to see a bigger picture, wisdom, they're spiritual tools. Some of these tools we call spiritual gifts, and that comes from the Bible where we've got several different places where we list a series of gifts, among them gifts like administering or organizing or speaking. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians, it's in chapter 10, about times like the one we're living in. He said that in times of struggle, with our mandate to make right what has gone wrong, we're like an army locked in a struggle. And like any army, he said, it's important for us to become skilled in and capable with the tools that we've been given. He calls them the weapons of our warfare. And he told us, though 
Those tools, they really are very effective, but they're not the tools that we tend to grab for instinctively. They're powerful, they're capable of breaking up systems and power structures that damage people, but they're not the same old, same old kinds of tools that we tend to gravitate toward that our instinct-driven brains tend to go for. When there's an important job to be done, when there is an important struggle to be undertaken, it turns out that the tools that we're super familiar with, organizing tools, administrating tools, communicating tools, problem-solving tools, word-saying tools, those tools become much more effective when they're joined with and working in concert with the tools drawn from the spiritual toolbox. So, when tools like love and kindness and goodness are in the mix, when tools like discernment and courage and wisdom are in the mix, when interior peace is in the mix, when the central organizing principle of life in the divine is in the mix, all the other tools become significantly more effective. Now that term I just used, the central organizing principle of life in the divine, that may not be familiar if you're kind of new to our community, because in the last couple of years, I've not used that phrase as frequently as I have used it in the past. I've used other terms to talk about the same principle. But here's how I used to say it a lot. I used to say that the central organizing principle of life in the divine is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The central organizing principle of life in the divine is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by which I mean this. If you and I are accessing, if you and I are immersed in, if you and I are deeply seeking the interior voice and the inner strength and the inner life and the inner vitality and the inner wisdom and the inner discernment of the divine spirit, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit which indwells each of us and animates us and makes us us. If we are doing that, our tradition tells us, being baptized in, swimming in, immersed in, the very breath of God that each one of us carries inside of us, the breath of God that gives us life, that's how our Genesis story tells us. If we are doing that, we are granted a deeper access to the life and light and strength and wisdom that we need to do what it means to be followers of Jesus in establishing the kingdom of God. If we are doing that, we have greater access to courage and to metal and to resolve and to grit. We have greater access to the counterintuitive strength of gentleness and inner peace and inner calm. And we have that because, because each of us is animated by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The central organizing principle of life in the divine is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the spiritual tradition, the spiritual journey, gives us in this baptism access to indwelling source and indwelling power and indwelling presence. The spiritual journey points us to the historical experience of our forebears, those who have gone before us, who modeled for us what the journey looks like. 
what it does for us, what it does to us, what happens to us and then what happens through us to our worlds and neighborhoods when we experience this central organizing principle, when we experience this life in the divine. One of the things that happens on a regular basis throughout our history when people uh, stumble into this spiritual dynamic is what we saw in the Amos lesson. When we get past all of the static that this election season put into the systems system, the essence of the spiritual life that rises within us in this baptism moment is the impetus to and the capacity for making the world right when it goes wrong, bringing light to bear when our world gets lost in darkness, and to scatter the preserving quality of salt when the world around us begins to get corrupted. It is the mission of those who follow Jesus, not just to make noise, but to make a difference. Now, that's not to say that noise-making doesn't make a difference. It can. But it's to say that if we make noise, we must make noise that makes a difference. I read a book while I was away uh, last month. The title is Doing Good Better. I would encourage you to read it. The thesis was this. A whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of money gets spent trying to make the world a better place. But unfortunately, a lot of that resource uh, doesn't do much to move the needle in terms of outcomes that would actually change the world around us. It turns out that if you wanted to affect climate change by reducing carbon emissions, changing out your light bulbs or recycling or driving a hybrid doesn't do much to actually reduce carbon emissions. It turns out that most of the things that we do actually move the needle very little. But it turns out that if that was your passion, if that was your interest, a very small donation each month to help develop the economic systems for vested villages in keeping their rainforests, rainforests part of their economic viability, that, it turns out, actually does a great deal to reduce carbon emissions and in the process bring about economic viability for the dispossessed and in the process create thriving businesses and in the process create economic systems in which people have dignity and are able to thrive. It turns out if you wanted to move the needle, we might want to be discerning of what actually does. And if you were interested in improving educational outcomes in poor nations, it turns out that all the work and all the money that is necessary to ship used textbooks to classrooms overseas that don't have textbooks does very little to change educational outcomes, even though they don't have class, uh, textbooks. And it turns out that teacher education, even though many teachers in poor nations are very uneducated, does very little to move the needle in terms of educational outcomes. But if you were interested in improving educational outcomes in poor nations, you would find that there is some effectiveness in creating a systematic program of deworming children. That, it turns out, actually moves the needle. That actually changes educational outcomes. Once that is done, you can actually think about textbooks and you can actually think about teacher education. And so the point of the book is for all the energy and all the effort and all the money that we put into trying to make the world a better place, we would get a much greater return on our effort if we practiced some discernment and some wisdom and had insight. Now I say all that because those words, wisdom, discernment, insight, are 
our heritage within the spiritual tradition. The practices that we encourage one another to, the pursuit of the indwelling Spirit of God, the awakening to, the baptism in, this indwelling Spirit of God, these things are designed for just that purpose, to do good better. Because these tools help us bring our best selves, our discerning selves, our courageous selves, our insightful, our inner peaceful our peacemaking selves to the task that's been given us by Jesus. And the central tool for this spiritual mandate is to be listeners to the indwelling Holy Spirit, to be perceivers of the indwelling divine, to be accessors of the truer true and of the realer real. The central organizing principle of life in the divine is to be baptized in, immersed in, swimming in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, we meditate. And so, we form intentional networks of spiritual friendships. And so, we practice confession, the practice of self-awareness and self-disclosure. And so, we develop Enneagram awareness to help us spot ourselves when we fall into our false self version of being, and we learn, and we serve, we practice examine, and we do the things, we work the circle in a way that helps us have access to the central organizing principle of life in the divine. A couple other ways that I've said that phrase has been we obey, uh, we listen carefully and we obey tenaciously. You might have heard me say it that way. Or the two-step dance of the spiritual journey is to desire and pay attention, desire and pay attention. So when we do that thing, when we listen carefully, when we obey tenaciously, history has given us a sense of what comes next. History has given us a sense of what is before us. Acting on the message of Amos, we are called to and we discern the call to do our bit to repair the broken parts of the world. That's at the core of what this baptism does in and through us. So I went back to a book that I read some time ago looking for the story I'm about to read to you. It was about this central organizing principle. It speaks to our mandate to listen carefully and to obey tenaciously. The title of the book is A Christian View of Hospitality. The author's name is Hirschberger. I edited the story down for length, but even so, it's still pretty long, so take a breath. I don't like strangers. I don't like strange situations. (laughs) So I hadn't read, I hadn't studied the Enneagram the first time I read this story, and then I did. And then I read this story again, and I thought, I think I know who this is. (laughs) I don't like strangers. I don't like strange situations. They feel dangerous. It takes me a long time to get to know people. Most are nice enough, but there are weirdos out there. Fonda brought her kids to my daycare. She was one of my strangers. She was different. Many days her face was marked with scratches. She smoked one cigarette after another. Her kids were often rude. She was slow paying her bill. She always seemed to have a chip on her shoulder. And when she left my daycare, she left $600 unpaid. And for a struggling business, that really hurt. I needed every cent just to make payroll. About six weeks after she left, I had one of those interior nudges while I was praying. Go buy Vonda some groceries. As soon as I had that nudge, I thought to myself, that's just crazy. 
But there it was, the nudge was there in a very deep part of me. I resisted it, I really did. And for a lot of good reasons. She owed me money, I might offend her, her life was none of my business, I didn't have the money, I was super busy, I'm not good with words, I wouldn't know what to say, I have my own kids to care for, I'm burned out. But for two weeks, this inner divine nudge kept up. Just two bags of groceries, just two bags of groceries. Finally, I caved. I sent my husband to get $50 worth of groceries on a Thursday night, and the next morning when we were sure she'd gone to work, he delivered them for me, and that was it. No fanfare, no choirs of heavenly angels. It was all so uneventful, my husband didn't even remember doing it. And then I forgot about it, and I forgot about her, until it happened again six months later. Another interior nudge, another message, just as clear. This time, go visit Vonda. And this time, too, I thought it was foolish. And this time, too, there were thousands of reasons not to go. And this time, too, she'd moved 20 miles away. I didn't even know her exact address. But this time, I only argued for two hours. Even so, I kept saying to myself as I went, this is stupid, this is so stupid, but I was driving down the road. Her address wasn't in the phone book. Again, how stupid. I drove aimlessly in the general area. I'd heard she moved, and every turn of the steering wheel, I kept saying, stupid, stupid, stupid. This time, my fear wasn't of strangers. It wasn't my fear of being in the car alone. This time, my fear was of failing because I was afraid that I would try to follow the interior voice, and I was afraid nothing would happen, and I was afraid I'd be a fool. But on the third street that I wandered down, I saw her kids. And when I did, excitement rose inside of me, and they seemed happy to see me too, and they took me home, and they got me to her. And so for the first time, we hugged as friends. She wasn't a client, and I wasn't the day school director. We weren't in our roles. We were just two people together. When she invited me inside, her home was clean, but it was bare. There was no heat, and it was a chilly time of year. She parsed out the food carefully when the children asked. I could have seen all this before, but I hadn't. I really hadn't wanted to. She told me her story that day. And I learned why she had those scratches on her face. I learned about abuse. I learned about hardship. It was a hard story. I cried. She didn't. At least not until she told me the, tar the part about readying herself to commit suicide. It was a Friday, and she was facing another weekend without food for her kids. She just couldn't do it again. She borrowed a gun, planned to shoot the children, and then herself. She told me that she had prayed on the drive home that day, only to arrive to two bags of groceries on her doorstep. The dogs in the neighborhood were circling the food, but they hadn't gone near it. Two bags of groceries. An angel sent them, she told me. I never told her otherwise. I received a gift that day, much better than two bags of groceries that I delivered so half-heartedly. It was such a gift that if I never receive another like it, it will be enough. It will be enough. The central organizing principle of the divine life is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is being immersed in and drawing from the indwelling spirit that animates us all. It is the listening for and the drawing from the interior voice. Now, this lady's story is dramatic. Most stories aren't like that. Most of the time, change happens slowly. The movement of God in our lives is glacial. 
and incremental. Most decisions are mundane. Most decisions are commonplace. But when our mundane, every day, every day, commonplace decisions are informed by the interior life of the divine, then we infuse that divine life into the fabric of our everyday decisions. And that, our forebears taught us, is how we actually move the needle. That's how we actually change our worlds. Spiritual tools catalyze effectiveness for all the tools. Spiritual tools help us when we apply our energy and our effort and our dollars. The spiritual tools help us be effective and help us move the needle because spiritual tools help us draw from the interior divine life. And so again, we do the practices. And so again, we quiet ourselves. And so again, we meditate, we work the circle. And one of the things that we do is we ask for discernment about our place in this kingdom of God. We make it a question that we put before the indwelling spirit. How will I change this broken world, God? How will I move the needle indwelling Holy Spirit? How will I be effective What is there about my job that I could do differently? What is it about my home that I could do differently? In this kingdom of God, what is my bit? What's my place in this great effort set before us? So as I was reading over my notes from that book, uh, there was another story there. It wasn't the one I was looking for, but it did strike me because a couple of people have noted a point of disconnect in our community this last month or so. While we have been up in arms about the injustices on both sides of this election tumult, there's been a quiet opportunity to change our world that has gone wanting. As you heard during the announcements, our community participates in Temple's Table. It's not a very big commitment. It's about 30 minutes, once or twice a month. But we weren't getting very many volunteers to help deliver Meals on Wheels when they're not funded on the weekend. And so I ran across this story in the book, and I thought it was worth reading because it very much echoes what happens when we experience the central organizing principle. It's from that same book. Again, I've edited it down for length. Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Two disciples met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. But I usually meet Jesus on Tuesdays. And I meet Jesus about 10 times each week. I meet Jesus on Portage Lane and Burr Oak Place, and at Pleasant Plain and on Hiawatha Drive. If you were to ring the bells at these doors, you might not recognize Jesus, but it's Him. At some of the doors, Jesus is black, at others white. At almost all of them, Jesus is old. Sometimes He smiles, other times He cries. Mrs. Jesus, who lives on DeCamp Court, is in a wheelchair. I try to touch her hand and always say a word or two because I don't think she gets very much of that in her life. If I'm near the end of my mobile meals route, I'll stop a while and I'll chat with Jesus. Sometimes Jesus asks me to pray with her that her home nursing care won't run out. Sometimes Jesus is afraid he'll have to go into a state nursing home. Sometimes we pray that Jesus' daughter will come and visit him. Sometimes in the winter, instead of carrying a hot meal to Jesus... I carry a snow shovel and a small snowblower. At these doors, Jesus has other names. 
He usually comes to the door to thank me. Once he said, I don't know what I would do without you. Imagine that, Jesus not doing what to do without me. Our scriptures tell us that when we care for the other, we care for Jesus. So I figure I'm meeting Jesus when I meet Tanya and Sylvia and Cora and Margaret. I get to meet Jesus on Tuesdays and I get to bring him a meal. I have to work hard to make time to meet Jesus. It's easy to get so busy I don't recognize Jesus when I see him. It's a shame when I miss chances like that. The central organizing principle of life in the divine is being baptized in the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And when we are filled in with and immersed in that inner breath, that interior life, and when we do the two-step dance of the spiritual life, when we listen carefully and obey tenaciously, what do we hear? We hear the mandate to go make the world right. And that spiritual mandate is given to conservatives, and that spiritual mandate is given to liberals, and that, that spiritual mandate is given to us as Christians. Along with that mandate, we Christians are given a toolbox full of spiritual tools. And when we access them, and when we grow skilled in their use, we can fulfill that mandate more effectively. We can bring fruitfulness to our efforts. We can actually make change in the world around us. We can move the needle. We can do good better. And so, Holy Spirit, may it be so among us as a community. May we become ever more skilled in our access to and our use of the spiritual tools given us. And may we be ever more deeply baptized in the indwelling Spirit of God. Be that so among us, Lord. Amen. Well, if you would